You're a little taller. You want to sit over here? No, I'm good. Okay. Because I'm already set up. Plus, I'm supposed to be farther away, so I don't give people six. <laughs> sick. Yeah. I'm really going to come out of here six. <laughs> that, hmm. No, would that would be, be the worst downgrade. thing in the world. I mean, I wouldn't die soon, but true, I'd but... still have to go through the whole teenage years again. But school would be a breeze this time. <laughs> <laughs> God, school might be really boring. On the other hand, I could just ignore everything and work on my own projects. That's right. And you can be the you can you can run the school with your advanced I, brain. I'm not sure that's how the schools work. No, but you could probably run the the bullies somehow. I don't know. You probably, we, I don't know if you could argue with kids or not if you're smart. It doesn't work with adults. But you might you, you might you might freak them the fuck out if you're talking at them like a thirty year old within six year old body. You might be able to like corral the nerd the nerd group. That's but true. Yeah, I, I don't think you're about to talk any nerds into not beating you up. <laughs> so let's introduce ourselves. Hey, welcome to the Bayesian Conspiracy. This is Katrina Stanton. This is Steven Zuber. And this is Ineash Brodsky. And today we are talking about the Sanity Waterline. Specifically, should we raise it? Can we raise it? And before we start any of that, I should probably introduce what the Sanity Waterline concept is. Please do. Okay. The Sanity Waterline is, coined by Eliezer, of course, is the idea that there is fundamental problems in society itself that has let us get to this point in how we think. The example he brings up, which I think might be slightly contentious, but not a bad example, is that of religion, that even if you were to get rid of all religion, and, you know, to be, to be less contentious, let's just go with creationism. We can all agree that young earth creationism is really past the pale, and there's no reason for anyone to believe that that's sane. The, the young earth creationism being the belief that the earth was created 6,000 years ago. Are you sure you're not marginalizing the, the less wrong young earth creationist overlap there? You know what? They can stop listening if they want, or they can continue either way. Uh, so we'll take creationism. Even if you were to wipe out entirely the concept of creationism, which in America has an approval, a belief rating of something like 40 to 50%. Yeah. Young it, earth? Yes, young earth creationists, 40, sub 40 to 50% of people subscribe to it. So yeah, totally. The earth was created 6,000 years ago. Even if you were to wipe out that belief completely and everyone were to just have that erased from their heads and no one would think of it again, the, there is this problem in society that that belief could arise in the first place. And it would be no more than a few months before something equally crazy swept through the country because there's a fundamental problem in how people think if thoughts like that are that easily and that widely accepted. So what's the origin of this problem? I was just reading something that talked about our ancient brains. Mm -hmm. Our ancient brains that evolved over, over hundreds of thousands of years, obviously longer than that, actually. And it evolved over 6,000 years. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> are ill-equipped to handle... Um, our, our space age world. They're very well equipped to handle running around the savannah. Yeah, if that's if that's what you want to do, right? And making babies. And they're they're only kind of okay with that. I mean, I guess you're they're optimized for false positives because you you survive longer. Okay. Well, the, the... I wanted to bring in this quote at the top of that that essay because uh -huh. I liked that a lot. It's it has that great Feynman esque strategy of sounding complicated, but then you dissect it and it doesn't. Uh huh. Um. So. The the post that we're kind of deriving this episode from is on Less Wrong called Raising the Sanity Waterline. It begins, to paraphrase the Black Belt Bayesian, behind every exciting dramatic failure, there is a more important story about a larger and less dramatic failure that made that first failure possible. Beautiful. Beautiful sentiment right there. <laughs> I think it's 
so I read that the first time and I'm like, what is okay? What do you, what do you mean? And then he goes on to say, if every trace of, and we'll, we'll amend it to work with our own example. <laughs> if every trace of religion, but we're subbing creationism for our example here, was magically eliminated from the world tomorrow, then however much improved the lives of many people would be, we would not even have come close to solving the larger failures of sanity that made religion possible in the first place. So there's a larger and less dramatic example that made that first problem uh, possible. possible in the first place. And in this case, sanity is, or the, the lack of sanity is the difference between what reality and what our brains perceive or not. I don't think it's just what our brains perceive because there's very little supernatural to be perceived. It's the lack of ability to think through things and correlate thoughts in your head. I think the reason this is brought up as a lack of sanity in society in general, as opposed to individual people, is because it is so widely accepted. I'm reminded of the, I believe it was Neil deGrasse Tyson quote, where he was uh, talking about uh, the correlates between education and religion. And the more educated you are, the less religious you are as a populace. Uh, I believe he said some with the high school uh, dropout rate, it's around 70% belief. Once you get a high school degree, it drops to 60. Once you get a college degree, it drops to like 40. A graduate degree is down to 30. Keeps going through the list. He says the very top of, uh, of educational attainment is the scientists who work in the elite academy. I believe it was the National, National Academy, academy of, Sciences. of Sciences. Yeah. Uh, and he said, and in there, there's only a 7% belief rate. And he goes, now some people bring this up to, you know, point out that the more educated you are, the less you believe in religion. But what I really want to know is, What's up with that 7%? I'm really glad you brought that up because I hate that he focuses on that. You, they hate that. Cause, Why? Because he makes, I guess looking at it through this lens makes it sound much more reasonable. I kind of took it to mean, because he, he, he doesn't like to be confrontational about religion. Yeah. Um, and so I took it to mean where he's like, look, 7% of scientists are religious, you know, but they're still doing science. So let's just, uh, you know, whatever. But see, no, I, I always took way. it the opposite way that, that yeah. you know, what is going on? That even the most educated and intelligent people in society still have a 7% belief rate. So, um, they're referring to theism of, uh, or both of the, of the poly or monotheistic. There, there are some people that are just the vaguely spiritual, like I see patterns in the connections, but there are some people that are just hardcore scripturalists, even in, in those levels. And probably mm -hmm. somewhere on the spectrum between, you know, like, Oh, it must mean something that my phone rang right when I plugged it in or something, you know, the people who draw significance from coincidences. Yeah. All the way down to like, I believe in ghosts. And then I guess, yeah, somewhere near the bottom is 6,000 year old earth. So. Right. I, I don't think any of those, you know, I don't think the, my phone rang, it's a coincidence exists in the NAS people, but the fact that you can have this knowledge of how the world works and how you're supposed to gather evidence and correlate evidence in your head but still have the special place in your head where all the tools that you have learned just don't get applied because it's special is a unique failure. I thought that's what Neil deGrasse Tyson was saying. Maybe that is just my interpretation of his well, words. Um, isn't that the Stephen Jay Gould separate magisteria? It is. Can I dismantle? Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, please. I just please wanted to dismantle Gould's magisteria in one example. One example? Yeah. Do it. So... It's a, it's a great way to like say, Hey, look, we can stop arguing. Let's just, you know, play in our own sandboxes. Mm -hmm. But the thing is, no one would be content with that. So like, say the Shroud of Turin contained DNA that was 
proven to only have mitochondrial DNA and no like familial or no uh, paternal lineage, there's no religious person on earth who wouldn't freak out and be like, see, that proves it. That was Jesus. And he didn't have a father. See? So like they, they're, they're fine. With Jesus saying, did have a father. Not and a, that not that a father was father. God. Oh yeah. <laughs> but does he have 23 chromosomes that he submitted to Mary when he knocked her up? Without I mean, asking? why not? We don't know the details. So were you there? What I'm getting at though is I, I would, I would imagine that that, that finding would be relished in a religious community as a strong evidence of the divinity of whoever was wearing that, the Shroud of Turin, right? So, mm-hmm. um, or at least I think they would find a way to shoehorn it into look proof, proof of Jesus being magic. Yeah. Um, yeah. Only but, positive evidence. Well, that's my point, right? So they, they're, they're fine to say separate magisteria whenever we point out something that doesn't make sense. Like you can't, uh, come back three days after being killed or you can't be born without a father. So unless you're a non-mammalian. Right. Well, that's hey. my, that's my biologist. Um, are we bringing in the lizard people? conspiracy uh, theory? <clears throat> into so, so reptilians, any bird people out there and definitely insect people. Um, there's a, there's definitely a probability that they could be born parthenogenically without a father. Okay. Back to your regular programming. <laughs> I liked your, your interpretation of, of Tyson's query there. I, maybe because the only time I've seen him talk about it, he sort of stopped the, he's like kind of stopped the conversation at that point. Mm-hmm. But if he, if he had said what you, what the next thing that came out of your mouth afterwards, which is what's going on there, that's yeah. really weird. Let's figure out what's going on there. Um, I think I might have come to that way. I don't know why I took it the other way, right. but I, I think your interpretation's probably more, more likely. Well, and, I any, think any beat cop like knows how probability of evidence works you know that's that's what i don't know maybe maybe not a beat cop but a detective at any rate uh knows how to weigh well this means that this likely happened and this is just beyond the pale and if they see a bullet casing on the ground and they see a guy with a bullet hole in his chest they assume that the casing probably came from the bullet that shot the dude well it's not like it's um it's not like they have to work to compartmentalize. That's, no. That is the natural, yes. the natural order of things is what you learn in one field sticks to that field and, and is difficult else. for people to generalize. Yeah. And generalize knowledge and learning. And I believe that actually is Eliezer's point that the sanity waterline, that the general level of people applying their skills to everything in life is so low that these ridiculous beliefs pop up even among people who shouldn't have these beliefs. And so it should be, in theory, fairly easy to raise the general sanity level in the population if we can just get people to, to you know, apply these tools to all their thinking. That's a, <laughs> It will be so easy if we can just do this incredibly difficult thing. Yeah. I, I think that that's, that's what I was going to say, too. So it, that, that does sound like it would solve or go a long way towards solving uh some of those the society uh wide rationality issues but that's a rather hard task there was a great anecdote there was a a talk at the uh 2014 amazing meeting um it was a panel discussion with julia galiff dan dennett and two other people who i'm not familiar with but we'll link to the the talk in the description for this episode and on the website and they discuss this very issue, can you teach rationality? And mm-hmm. like most 45-minute panel discussions, they don't come to a consensus. <laughs> but one of the panelists, I forget her last name, first name was Barbara. She talked about how she taught probability theory to a lot of her students, and they could, they nailed it. You know, you're talking about drawing marbles out of urns, and they, they had it just fine. And I'm not sure, she didn't sound like she was making up the, she didn't sound like she was 
making this a hyperbole, but she said the second that she switched the examples to M&Ms, all their skills fell apart. Oh, no. And so if it's that hard to, to generalize colored balls from M&Ms, yeah. I think generalizing standard rational practices to everyday life might be a, a very... Well, arduous th- task indeed i think that's kind of what this episode is about because you guys are saying like it's the most impossible thing but how did we come to this you know realization and get these skills i read a series of blog posts on the internet it's a good thing we're perfectly sane right? no well, <laughs> i'm saying if all i had to do was read some blogs by a guy who could write entertainingly it, I, it shouldn't be that hard to impart right did that, did that cause you to lose your religion so no so i'd lost my religion long before what that. happened so what happened when you read those blog posts what did you generalize that to that's what i want to know Inyash. what do you mean what did i generalize it to so we're talking about you you read those blog posts you're like sounds good to me right. now how did it impact your life and and those other compartments that we're talking about how do you use it in work how do you use it um, yeah, just on the, on the day to day, how do you use it when you're doing physics? You know, I, I don't know. <laughs> I don't actually use it at work because my work is fairly simple. I'm an accountant. It's all, you know, basic math stuff. So I, I don't use it at work at all. I, I use it more in my day to day life and in how I think about things and assign probabilities to beliefs. Like I, I think one of the major things before was I, I grew up in a very fundamentalist religion and things were generally very black and white. This is good. This is bad. There's no in between. This is true. This is false. You know, God created the earth. But here's the funny thing about young earth, cre- about uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. They're creationists, but they're not young earth, right? So God created everything exactly how it is, but he did it billions of years in the past. And, you know, that's... So how, what's their version of history? Well, uh, you know, when, when creatures enter the evolutionary um, record, that's not when they evolved into that form. That's when God decided eh, it's about time to make some lizards. And so he made some lizards then. I can totally see that. That yeah. sounds... And after a while, he's like, oh, this planet's kind of boring without humans. Let's make humans now. And that's when humans showed up in the fossil record. I'm going to say that sounds distinctly less probable than just standard young earth creationism. Really? Because saying... They don't have to fight <laughs> against the carbon dating people. Exactly. They don't have to fight against the fossil record. Right. Well, they, they have to specifically fight against the fossil record because you get transitionary species and you get... Sir, there are no transitionary species. (laughs) (laughs) Allow me to correct you before you go any further. Oh, that's right. Whenever you find, whenever you fill a gap, you just make two Two. more smaller gaps. Right. Yeah. No. So, so the interesting religion has, I guess, not that much to do with what I was saying. Um, but before, before I was thinking very much black and white, uh, truth or false. And once I lost my religion and started thinking more, um, empirically, and I guess more just general liberally, I guess would be the term. Because you associate liberal liberalness with this sort of wishy-washy gray area, nothing's quite certain. And I didn't know how to handle that. So I was just like, I guess anything is possible, you know, and mm-hmm. I guess everything is equally valid. And uh, so it was just basically everything's some just this one shade of gray and you can't really make any judgments or decisions. And then stumbling across this, the, the Bayesian thinking, where you can actually put different probabilities on different things and adjust your probabilities as you encounter more evidence, I was like, oh, so I can say with very high certainty that God doesn't exist without having to say things, you know, like there's absolutely no life in the universe or whatever. I guess that has nothing to do with God. (laughs) I don't have to say there's absolutely no chance Jesus as a historical figure didn't exist in Judea around 30 BC. So 
And a lot of people have to seem to be like either I have to fight for there was a historical Jesus or I have to fight against there was a historical Jesus. I can be like, you know, there's a decent chance that there was some rabbi that went by not the name Jesus, but was it Yeshua or something that went by that name? And eventually his legend was transfigured. And there were a lot of messiahs around that time. And I'm sure they all. So you can have these probabilities in your head and you don't have to be yes or no for one or the other. And it really makes life a lot easier to approach when you you admit that your view is uncertain, but you get it as certain as you can. What you, what you just were talking about makes me think of two points. One is that we do all have examples in our lives of times that we transfer knowledge or what we've learned about rationality or even another subject, maybe statistics, mm-hmm. um, maybe something else where we transfer that to something else in our lives to our benefit, I guess. Um, but. I think that what we're lacking is general transference, general and measurable transference that's not, you know, largely anecdotal. But that's a skill that can be taught if you keep trying or can be improved anyway if you keep trying at it, right? What's your evidence? I want to say, too, that that's what's evidence is a really good question because it's I think it's really hard to tell how good someone is slash how good they're getting slash how much better they are than they were mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to that sort of skill. Like I said, for myself, I think I said last episode was I try to say, or I tried to not, because I want to say it as often as it's needed, but I want to not need to say, man, I was stupid, um, <laughs> you know, every other day. So, but I wanted to say about what you said, Inyash, the switch from binary to Bayesian thinking. And that was what was really interesting. I'm not sure when, if that came to me before or after less wrong. Or before, I guess, or during. But I'm not sure. Maybe we're all told everything's binary or we're kind of pre-programmed that way. That things, you know, this is either true or it's not. But, oh, it makes it easier. Uh, it does. But, so, yeah. But I so, guess it makes it much easier to form into coalitions. If you can true. say, you know, these people are for us, these people are against us. Or these people are for this idea or against this idea. And since so much of our history is about forming coalitions. <laughs> I think that that's probably a, a, at least part of the, the right explanation. You know... When I went into college and I took a chemistry course and everything I learned was different from high school chemistry, which before I thought was the absolute real thing, mm-hmm. um, I guess that really threw me for a loop and everything turned into to more shades of gray at that point. But when I learned about less wrong and rationality, it was pr- mostly pretty much what I already knew intuitively. And I credited that with growing up always wanting to be a scientist nice. and, you know, learning science and um, being immersed in biology and, and kind of learning what we don't know and what the holes are about our world and what we assume. Yeah. We assume so much um, that we just, we just take as knowledge, but nobody's ever actually looked into it. So, so everything just fell in together really easily for me. And the example that I told you guys before we started recording was um, my husband, Tim. He grew up as a young earth creationist and the rest of his family is still young earth, 8,000 years old, you know, creationist. It's six to eight. Oh, okay. Um, It's something. They have some wiggle room in there. It's like October 24th. (laughs) Well, it depends who you ask, but there is a guy. Well, there's an established year for a lot of these people, some 6,700 years I don't believe they had an established year, but um, he said that 
you know, he, he got away from young earth when he took a geology course and he's mm -hmm. like, oh, well, guess that those two things don't square up. And he dropped God. He dropped theism after he took some statistics. Why statistics? Because he started to think in terms of probability, I think. Oh, uh, we'd have to ask him directly. Okay. I can imagine one avenue would be, how do I know which, you know, there are so many gods. How, what would make me think this one's the right one? You know, my odds are like one in a thousand. That's, I mean, uh, I find that convincing. I don't, I don't know if that's the way that he went. I wanted to say really quick that it's interesting when you mentioned that Tim took a geology class mm -hmm. and said, wow, my religion's false. Maybe not, you know, after day one or all at once, but he started to question and it, you mm -hmm. know, fell apart for him. I'm wondering what discerns people like Tim from people that like I met in college and I met people like Tim as well, but I met people who go to college. That's probably some of their first time coming into some of these ideas because they're, you know, homeschooled or, or private schooled and evolution loses out. Geology loses out. It doubled down. Loses out. Mm -hmm. Well, so yeah, but that's, so that's the thing is that it doesn't seem like enough just to give them the information. Tim had some sort of a disposition that allowed him to, to update in the direction. He's I'm, a, he's a very intelligent person on his, he, he wrote a little blog about the transfer of learning. Okay. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm trying, I'm trying a couple of the things that he suggested, which I don't, know that I completely agree with this, but he suggested that intelligent people make connections better. Okay. Oh, right. I know. So that, um, and it's possible that when we as relatively intelligent people think about all the connections that we've made and all of the, the major changes in opinion, um, that we've come to in our lives, then, um, based on, you know, our education and rationality or science or, or whatever, then uh, maybe we're kind of able to do that and not everyone is. I don't think I agree with him on that necessarily. I think, again, that people are are able to update all the mm -hmm. time and that it's How being in a, it's being in a, I, I think it's probably being in a situation where you have the motivation to update. That makes the difference rather than the intellect to update or the intellect to to do that um, knowledge transfer and draw. Point. So I am saying that based on not much. <laughs> no, well, I, although I, I believe that there probably I mean, I'm sure there is research on um, oh, knowledge I, transference and learning transference and motivation. It's just I don't know of it. Everything is incentive gradients, right? <laughs> you, you need some incentive to to do this. And I was nodding when you were you're illustrating that example about needing an incentive to change and or a, a motivation. And I, I had a couple of thoughts. Well, you can be highly intelligent and still be a devout yes. fundamentalist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like Alvin Plantigna writes papers and books, and he's he he's a philosopher who writes for religious apology apologists, mm -hmm. and he he seems like a smart enough guy. But then then you you really struck a chord when you said that you need the motivation to change. One of our friends, and we should have Autumn on if we ever want to talk about losing your religion. Well, so we've just out of curiosity, how many here used to be like, you know, very strongly religious and got rid of that? No. Oh, I was never no? very strongly religious. Oh. My, I was always an atheist. Oh, okay. Or I, at least non-religious. I, I started out, um, like I was the opposite of Tim, where you said that, you know, he took geology and he's like, oh, well, that's false. Like, I fought with people for years about, you know, evolution 
and these things. It, it was eventually just a preponderance of all the evidence in the world, and it broke me down. I want to meet that Inyash. <laughs> <laughs> was, oh my god, I gotta give so many props to this guy. I don't even know his real name, but he was this admin on a BBS that would just chat with me for hours into the night. That's awesome. And I was like, how can you not see evolution as such a crock? And yeah, no. I, I never I never admitted it to him because I don't think I changed while, you know, I was still talking with him. But he planted the seed and over over a couple of years it grew. I think that's how it works for a lot of people. For myself, I don't know how interesting this is, so I'll try and be brief, but I never was very religious. Religious in my family, my parents are both kind of like believe in belief kind of people. Although I don't think they know what believe in belief is, but that's sort of how I interpret their their behavior. But we never went to church. But it was mainly when I was 13, 14, 15 I guess starting to like actually wake up as an actual human and not being just kind of like an like a well I mean like kids unfair don't really unfair to children no <laughs> fair to children I, I I'll argue a bit that children most have children... strong incentives to stick to the beliefs of their parents that's true the scientist children at least up die until quickly. the what the scientist children die quickly don't go over there there's an alligator in that pond oh, allow me to test I want to test that yeah well not just that you know oh kids parents, do that all the time parents support you financially they they you have really strong incentives to stay on their good side. Well, I, I meant I meant specifically in that I don't. My memory of my childhood is very poor, but I don't remember yeah. being reflective at all before the age of thirteen, fourteen, fifteen. That's how bad my memory is. Somewhere within give or t- give or take two years there. Despite um, your lack of memory, I think that you probably were. I know I was, and I remember when I was a little girl, and I went to my parents and I said, "Mommy, Daddy, is there a God?" Mm-hmm. And they said, "We don't know." Ooh. Oh, see, my parents would say yes. Oh. My parents said, we don't know. And I went off and became an atheist. That works. So. For myself, like I said, it was, it was, and I, I don't know. I remember being a kid just to, to, to comment on my reflectiveness as a child. I remember doing a lot of things and not really understanding why or not, not reflecting hard enough to actually do anything about it. Like I remember like listening to the crappy music that my team, my classmates listened to even though I didn't like it. And I remember thinking, I don't like this, but I'm listening to it because they like it. But it never occurred to me to think one path, one step past that for maybe that's how a lot of people are. I don't know. I think but. I was constantly frustrated as a child. And I actually wrote myself in when I was in first grade, I wrote myself a letter to myself hmm. at age 18 saying, you need to treat little kids with respect. Aww. You need to listen. So you kept that letter. I, I read it. I read it when I was in, in my late teens and laughed because I was also really concerned that I was going to smoke or do drugs. <laughs> that was the other part of the letter to myself was I, like, by the way, apparently all teens do this. So according to the teacher, so don't do that. <laughs> I was really upset when I realized that I was going to be 20 when the year 2000 came along. And so I would be too mature to go out and enjoy myself. Oh. Yeah. How old were you when you had that thought? I must have been like nine or ten. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to be adult then. I won't know how to party anymore. Luckily, you radically <laughs> overestimated the maturity of adults. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but, and, and to be clear, I don't, I don't dehumanize and partying children. Partying for me at nine was, you know, having a sleepover in my pajamas. Hey. Sounds like fun. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't, I don't dehumanize children in the fact that I don't treat them like people. That's, that's I sort of do the opposite. I treat all, all children like they're basically full-fledged adults hmm. but so they like you a lot more but importantly depends on the kid soci- oh, yeah. our society as a whole doesn't treat uh children like people otherwise you know a kid who picked up his dad's gun and shot his neighbor would be sentenced to life in prison right. um so like and they're they're very often not uh because they they're, they're not deemed responsible for their actions but yeah. what i wanted to say 
was, and it's a really quick thing since religion, like I said, was kind of passive in my house. When I first started questioning about it and I would ask my parents all the, and as, like I said, a, a young teenager, pre driving age, you could get two questions in and they'd be like, well, that's, that's just where faith comes in. And I'm like, well, what's faith then? They're like, well, that's just, you, you know, and I can't remember what their answer was, but Richard Dawkins had the answer. Faith is the license people give themselves to believe something after reason fails. Hmm. Uh, and that was their answer, like, to everything. Like, oh, well, it's, uh, that's just faith. Or, and then I realized that no one had any good answers. I was like, okay, so all the answers suck. So either, you know, oh, anyway, so a little bit after that that I dropped it completely. Speaking of Richard Dawkins, I wanted to mention, he had a stroke on Saturday. Oh, no. Yeah, I didn't know this until last night. But he's doing pretty well. He's expected to make a full recovery. But that's kind of a bummer. Yeah. Huh. It's always a bummer when someone has a stroke. Agreed. Even if you're, even if some people aren't fans. I'm not even sure. even if some people are not fans of Richard Dawkins. Let let me especially right now. Let me only iterate to the audience that if you've only read Richard Dawkins in tweet form, you're not doing him justice. <laughs> uh, he doesn't do himself justice no, in tweet form. Why he does doesn't. he still get on Twitter? Daniel Dennett has even has even written to him saying, "Look, I feel like you're ruining your reputation." But read one of his books. Um, I read The God Delusion when I was a teenager, after when I was going through all this. And uh, actually, the last chapter basically got me into feminism. I don't know if you read The God Delusion or not, but the whole last chapter is on feminism. And I was, as a kid, you know, I was like, oh, well, things are fine. There's no there's no problems here. I was a kid. No one no one I saw had any problems. That's, that's what I'm kind of getting mm-hmm. at, right? Yeah. He, he raised my consciousness to that issue that's great. Uh, intensely. So I want to say that I don't know nearly enough about what's going on with Richard Dawkins now, and I don't think I've read any of his works. I I just cannot comment on it, and I have no well-formed opinion. <laughs> Fair enough. But I will lend you Unweaving the Rainbow, which was one of my favorite books. Okay. Um, And he wrote it. It, it basically is a counter-argument to the idea that science makes the world less interesting. And maybe... Mm-hmm. To bring it back to the podcast, you know, looking at the world rationally makes things less interesting because you know where's the magic? Miracle. Exactly. Well, did did Newton or did um, yeah, did Newton ruin the rainbow by reducing it to prismatic colors and figuring out how they're they're generated, or did he add to it by saying this is this is how nature generates these things and they're really cool, right? So it's a short book length response to that that challenge. So it was very fun. And you know, regardless of his whatever political problems he's been in his things are still very he contributed a lot and they're very interesting to read and you know you shouldn't shun him entirely just because he's kind of an asshat i tried sometimes. to have an argument once on twitter and i i'm on twitter maybe five minutes a year now but when mm. i first got into it and i was it was somebody was arguing that male circumcision was as big a problem worldwide as female circumcision or female genital mutilation mm-hmm. and i challenged but you can't have an argument in 140 characters no and uh after I don't know, half a dozen of these back and forth. I said, I don't think we're going to be able to communicate effectively. Let's let's just stop. And I failed. I, I quit responding to him. Twitter but, is probably the worst thing ever invented. And I, I don't I wouldn't go on there because you just cannot say anything meaningful in 140 characters. I don't know if it's meant you to be can meaningful. Give, you can, yeah, you can give sound bites and applause lights and people can be like, yay or boo. But that's really all you can do. I got into it because I was attending a conference and it was a main thing where people could kind of live talk about other things that were going on and stuff. So uh-huh. that was kind of fun. You have to uh-huh. learn how to use Twitter if you want to use it correctly. And I never took the time to do that. Uh-huh. Um, but I follow comedians on there and I got to say that they're pretty good at it sometimes. They sure are. Yeah. 
And <laughs> Anthony Jeselnik, whenever a tragedy happens worldwide, he says he gets text messages from, from family members and friends saying, don't. It's <laughs> <laughs> on there and he'll, he'll find some way to make it terrible. But so I, I this, this is, this is tangential, but, um, how do you guys feel about the whole not judging a work by its author? Because I, I remember was, yeah. when, uh, when Ender's Game, the movie came out and everyone freaked out because Orson Scott Card is, I'm not sure if he's actually homophobic because I didn't look that much into his, you know, personal. He totally thoughts. is. He is. Okay. Mm-hmm. I, I, I know he's a hardcore well. M- Mormon and Mormons are very structurally homophobic or institutionally homophobic. So I, I, you know, figure if he follows that religion, he might be as well. But he is personally said. Okay. Yes, personally. But, you know, it, it doesn't change the fact that Ender's Game itself is a fucking brilliant book. That was like an awakening book. I loved that. I read it in yeah. sixth grade. My piano teacher gave it to me. Right. I read it last year. I, I know. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun and I had I liked it. Uh, it was great. Everyone I knew who said they were boycotting the movie, like, weren't losing anything because they'd already read the book. And, <laughs> and I was like, you're not giving anything up. And, and they weren't giving anything up because the movie was terrible. Oh, was it? Oh, you yeah. saw it. Yeah. Oh, I don't, well, if it makes anyone feel better, I didn't pay for it. So um, <laughs> oh, it makes me feel but, worse, actually. Well, <laughs> uh, I did buy a copy of Ender's Game to read that. So oh, okay. whatever. Yeah. Um, well, so I think there's two points. One, you might say, well, his, his books could be fine, but I refuse to give him money because mm-hmm. I disagree with him and how he's spending it or something. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, I think that people that believe weird or bad things can still be great authors. Apparently, I've never read them, but the... Uh, the Chronicles of Narnia are a great book series for children, and they're written by uh, C.S. Lewis, the, apo- the Christian apologist. But right. he was such a nice person. Yeah. Oh, maybe he was. I don't know. Yeah. Um, you can be weird. a Christian apologist, it turns out, and still be a great person. Well, I, didn't, I, I meant like, so I guess great person, insane person, bad person. So like, you know, whatever, whatever the author's disposition is that... That you don't like about it. Or that or that you, you know, want to identify with or support or something, right? Did you intentionally just reference Lord Liar or Lunatic? No. Oh, okay. But I like that, actually. All right. Um what they're talking about it's god was it c.s lewis that put forward the lord liar or lunatic yes okay because i and i i only remember that because christopher hitchens brought it up once okay and uh it's it's an old argument that jesus either you know but when you look at his thing yeah he either was the lord or he was a liar or he was a lunatic and we can rule out lunatic or liar so obviously he was the lord he was a lunatic like everyone else. It's it's a wonderful argument if you already believe. It leaves out the <laughs> it leaves out the hidden alternative of honestly mistaken mm. uh, <laughs> or legend. Yeah, that too. <laughs> Any anything starting with an L, right? Or just you know some good ideas, some bad ideas, all kind of like humans generally do, mixed up together. Yes. Where were we? Mm. Oh, we, we were talking about authors. authors. Yes. Yeah. So I think that. Like, is there a limit? Because if, if Hitler, you know, was still alive and in a prison somewhere, would it be okay to buy Mein Kampf to see what he said? Apparently the book is terrible, and it's okay. like the ravings of a child. But um, it's a, it has a great deal of historic value, yeah. right? Apparently. I was actually thinking about this recently because I was reading a modern, a modern anthology, and, you know, all-female writers, lots of minority authors, and um, one of the authors was somebody who had been called out by the writing community for some really nasty behavior, right? Okay. And she is alive and still writing, mm-hmm. and I got to I got to her piece in the anthology, and I saw the name, and I stopped for a moment. And I'm like, how do I, if I do read this, how do I read it? Do I read it, you know, 
completely separate from, from a knowledge of who this author is or how does that figure in? And it's kind of confusing. Yeah. It's kind of confusing. I think that with creative people, we give them a lot of license to be quirky and, and, and we, we let ourselves consume what they create, you know, if they're, um, topically Kanye West or who I've heard is an amazing artist. You haven't, just you a haven't terrible heard person. his stuff. <laughs> now, I've heard from just, a lot of people that listen to rap that he's like really it. freaking good at he what he does, and they're sad that he so, sucks so much as a person. So they should enjoy it, just like you know when I was was kind of sad that Christian Bale said some mean things because I like his acting. Oh, that's actually a great example. So Mel Gibson, when he mm-hmm. made an ass of himself, right? I can still enjoy Braveheart. You know, I think you should I, still enjoy Braveheart. Well, uh, no, no, no. I, I mean, this is not because I, I don't really know that many authors that are bad people that have read their books. But I'm trying to think. You know, it's like I enjoy some of the movies that that spy guy, Mission Impossible. Why well, can't think? Tom Cruise. Tom Cruise. I enjoy some of his movies, but I remember specifically thinking when Mel Gibson went off the rails that I was like, you know what? I'm not. I'm not a fan of Mel Gibson, but I'm a fan of William Wallace. You know, so like there, because you know. He, whatever he, if he makes money off the movie, he's going to make, I think mm-hmm. they make money enough anyway. You know, it's kind of like, I get the idea of not supporting it, but whatever. Mm. Um, I don't know if I ever bought that movie either. So for what that's worth. But, but, and, and this is a, a real life example. What if you really enjoy ice cream and your local ice cream shop is, is owned by a confirmed racist person? You wouldn't want to support them by going and buying ice cream there and enjoying that product of their labor. Are they actively racist or just like they're racist on the inside and whatever, but like... Like, do they not serve minorities in their store? They don't hire minorities. So, there's... So, actively racist. Fair enough. Well, so I'm trying to think of like, there was that nationwide example of Chick-fil-A, where the major owners donated tons in anti-gay charities... And I actually, I did boycott Chick-fil-A for that reason. Although I have eaten there. I boycotted Chick-fil-A because they serve chicken. Right. <laughs> and I, I, I agree with you. <laughs> we, need, we need to talk on, on I, that. I have taken too hard to the argument that if we start patronizing businesses based on the politics of the people who own them, then we will really just kind of have all the businesses we can go to and divide the nation more into red and blue and... There's no real good reason for it. Mm-hmm. I didn't mean specifically their politics. I meant specifically that apparently some fraction of my spending money there would go towards anti-gay charity. Right. Oh, but so it's, the same, it's of... the same situation right. that Inuyasha is talking about. Some yeah, fraction of money polarizing. that I make was going to go to causes that other people probably don't like. And yet, you know, do I want them to never buy anything that I make or not hire me? Also, we like all pay if, taxes. Right. What if what if my employer is a right-leaning Republican, but technically my employer is a right-leaning Republican, uh, and he would be like, oh, I'm sorry, you're too liberal, you can't have a job as an accountant. I'd be like, what the hell does my liberalism have to do with my accounting work? It's like, I don't know, this is just the way things run now. We only patronize people with the same politics as us. But that's, that's a different, that's moving the goalpost a bit, because they're talking about hiring people as opposed to uh, people shopping at your company. Right? Yeah, but they're well, paying him. Yeah, they're paying me for my labor as opposed to me paying them for their chicken. Well, them them saying they won't serve you, or that your 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 employers hypothetically saying we won't hire you is different than you saying I won't work for you, which is the which is the choice you make as a consumer. I won't buy from you. 
Not Chick-fil-A saying, we won't serve gays. I gotta say, right. well, they never one, said they that. never said that. And no, then... That's what, that's what I'm saying. That, that's what I'm saying. They're two completely different points. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm inclined... To, I'm, I'm convinced, after our little discussion here, that we should enjoy what we enjoy. I'm, I'm still sort of on the fence. Unless, I, 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 I mean, wanna... unless, unless Chick-fil-A was saying, we don't serve gays... Then you should definitely not yeah, go there. Like they, maybe it depends on uh, how intense they are. Um, Which they didn't you know, say. So like, yeah. but I, <laughs> yeah. I did want to say I, I have eaten a Chick Fil A in the last year because they lost the gay war thing or the gay rights war, and I'm not sure what their next thing is. But I'm like, well, I, you know, well, if you guys want to keep donating to that, whatever. But you already lost. The weirdest so. thing. I don't have anything against Chick Fil A on a philosophical level, but. I, you know, I don't go out to eat when I'm alone. If I'm alone, I'll grab whatever I have in the fridge. And whenever I'm out and about, I'm with someone else. I'm like, oh, I, I don't want to go into Chick-fil-A with this person right next to me. They'll judge me. And that's maybe why we So, yeah, it's the I've social done, pressure that keeps me out. I've done so much solo driving lately that I, I think maybe that's why I finally succumbed because other drive through places are getting old. Yeah. But... Um, and they really do make hmm. good chicken. It occurs to me that we're getting really far off. Yeah, actually, right. I was... I was thinking about um, about the original topic and something that Inir said earlier about um, you know assigning probabilities and after you know reading a series of blogs that that he found entertaining. Mm-hmm. Um, so so there was a survey of people who use less wrong, and I think that the results of that were that there was no difference in calibration ability between people who use less wrong and people who didn't, who are not members of less wrong. That's discouraging. Is that so? Or encouraging. (laughs) (laughs) We're all, we are all bad at calibration at these calibration exercises. Although calibration exercises, I think are not quite the same thing as what we're discussing in terms of, of raising the sanity waterline. Cause I think, Calibration is a slightly higher level skill, whereas we're talking about really, really basic things like make everyone in the world every now and then think just as in the back of their mind, what do I know and why do I think I know it? So, I mean, the the basic question of rationalism, right, is why do I believe what I believe? There's a great analogy to be made here between rationality as a skill and martial arts. Mm -hmm. And so... You know, so like if you're great at calibration, you know, that could be like the equivalent of you being able to punch through a board, but that's not the same thing as being good at martial arts. And so you might, you might be a really good fighter, but you're all Krav Maga and, you know, Brazilian Jiu Jitsu. It's not about breaking boards. So do you see what I'm saying? Does that make any sense? Yes. We need more research is what you're saying. That too. But I, I do like the analogy in that, uh, well, it sucks because we can't just put everything on hold until we conduct more research. You know, because, I mean, the research is, is, is currently being done, but it's taking a while, as it should, because it's being done, I think, properly. But in the meantime, we don't want to just hold off on all discussion until the results come in, because they're they're doing results on these kinds of things. So. Well, I mean, and I think you mentioned previous previously, not while we were recording this episode, that there's a lot of, that people feel like it's making a difference mm-hmm. in their lives. There's anecdotal reports that learning rationality makes a difference. And I mean, I can, again, and we can all report anecdotally that I could say I, I went to my job in marketing and got in a fight with my boss about whether a study was, um, 
was robust enough to quote or something like that, you know, mm-hmm. um, because I'm coming from a science background. So, so we know that, that we can transfer knowledge anecdotally and we know that it makes people feel better too if they, I guess, and, and, and we have a feeling that if people have the motivation that they can transfer what they learn about rationality to other parts of their lives. I think they could, yeah. I think it does need to be that kind of, that push moment where you finally start trying to use what you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and for a lot of people that just doesn't come because things are, are pretty relaxed and, you know, you have enough of a community that you don't need to, you know, so like I'm imagining that in some circles being a young earth creationist is like awesome. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, yeah. So, but if I were to come out as a young earth creationist, my friend group would, would look at me like I just came out as a Holocaust denier, mm-hmm. you know? So there's no pressure for some people whose society or social circles anyway are already cool with them being the way they are to, to bother changing. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking about Tim's family in eastern Tennessee, where everybody pretty much believes the same way that they believe. They're surrounded with messaging that confirms their beliefs and confirms that they're that their society believes the same way they believe. And it would be incredibly difficult to, to take somebody who's so comfortable out of bed, I guess, and, and put them somewhere else. I think you'd be hard, you'd be hard pressed to coerce them to get themselves out of bed and go yeah, somewhere else. Yes. I, I think if you just get people to care enough about figuring out how things actually are and making sure that their map is as close to reality as they can get it, that then the rest will shake out naturally. That's an interesting point, and there's a good counterexample, but mm-hmm. I wanted to raise one thing first, is that a lot of people just don't really care. Yeah. It's weird. I, yeah. I Even people that I'm really close with, you know, they're just like, that's just not really my thing. I'm, I'm happy and I'm right, you know. And I, I've never really understood how to get past the motivation problem. If someone just doesn't care, what do you do? Let I have no idea. Let them not care? Yeah. But what if you want to share with them all the cool stuff you like? <laughs> well, I mean, I... Recently met somebody like that and I was like, I was talking about, you know, this and that and this incorrect belief and this new thing. And he just said, yeah, I don't care about that. I am a simple guy. And the result was I was like, I am probably not going to go on another date with you. Right. <laughs> Maybe the difference between people like that is that simple to him is a compliment and to others it's not. <laughs> I think that gets us to the second part of the question being, should we try to raise the sanity waterline? Oh, I wanted to raise an example, though, about having... Your counterexample? Well, once you have a, a desire to, I guess, apply Bayesian thinking and map territory distinctions to the real world, wasn't the, the creator of Amund's Agreement Theorem, or Amund's, however you say his last name, mm-hmm. wasn't he a uh, wasn't he some, wasn't he a Jehovah's Witness or a fundamentalist or something? I don't know. Let me check. I think he may have been a fundamentalist. I don't think that he was a Jehovah's Witness, though. Although I could be wrong. I mean, I, I'm thinking if if he Do was, you know then we would have told us. Witness. <laughs> well, I knew Michael Jackson was Jehovah's Witness. I guess I just learned that Michael Jackson was Jeho- was a Jehovah's Witness. Yeah. I just I just learned that right this second. Oh yeah, that's yeah. what I mean. Yeah. Oh okay. <laughs> the second. I but learned. on the other hand, he's like a celebrity, so that would probably be brought up more often than someone no one's ever heard of. Well, not no one but someone that most people in my church wouldn't have heard of. Everyone had heard of, heard of Michael Jackson. Yeah, it's true. So while you're looking while you're looking up whatever you're looking up, Stephen. Couldn't find it. Okay. Yeah. Um, so, I was thinking the should we question. Yes. That harkens back to that 7% of whatever kind of scientist that Neil deGrasse Tyson was talking about. And if they're doing good work, 
you know, bless their hearts. They can believe whatever the heck they want. That's how I feel. I would feel that way if I thought that was possible. So like Francis Collins, uh, the director of the uh, National Institute of Health, appointed by Barack Obama as a young earth creationist. Mm-hmm. And Wait, young a lot, earth? A lot of, yeah. uh, oh, okay. a lot a lot of health uh, people are. But it's weird because he's the director of the NIH. So like it would be fine if he was going to be a health nut on his own little blog. Right, but, but he's actually pretty good as the director of health. Mm-hmm. He, he, he doesn't let that. Yeah, he doesn't let that interfere with his science. Well, in his presentations, he he comes right out and and challenges evolution. Um, right. You know, and so I I would not a very good role model. Well, so I just wor- I worry about the the health decisions that someone like that might make. You know, regarding a rapidly what, evolving pandemic spreading right. across the states virus uh, epidemiology or something right yeah. so oh well you know once we vaccinate it it'll be fine you know in 100 percent of people all the time because it can't possibly change well but he, he clearly doesn't, doesn't believe think that, that yeah, people thing. who are anti-evolution generally believe in microevolution right. this applies to tim's extended family yes. so um tim's i guess immediate family so um they can still do things like fight pandemics so look, i'll be generous to, to collins then and let's pretend that he he does that all of this. And I guess I'm not sure. So let, let's let's set as given then that that his science is sound as as often as the best atheist scientist. Then I wonder what is going on in his head that makes him so confident in his religion while at the same time being a great scientist. In his book, he talks about seeing a he he is on a on a retreat to find himself spiritually. Mm-hmm. And he saw a frozen waterfall frozen into three separate paths and, and was that, there a rainbow probably but <laughs> double rainbow. but but, but, the thing, <laughs> but the thing is is that the the frozen waterfall said the the, the triple stream frozen waterfall spoke to him of the trinity and then he he says he fell to his knees accepted jesus into his heart wow and so but it, i i'm wondering about that because and i think sam harris said that if a frozen waterfall can prove the divinity of of or the truth of Christianity, then anything can prove anything. Right. Well, I mean, that obviously wasn't yeah. his true reason. But he had a spiritual experience, I guess. Right. But but some, a lot of us have those anyway. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of us don't attribute things that can't be attributed to them to them. Right. So I think that's actually one of the good reasons to want to raise the sanity waterline because we, well, I don't know if we all have, but I've had spiritual experiences before. Sure. Yeah. But you can, you can interpret them in light of, oh, okay, this is probably what's actually happening as opposed to, oh God, there's actually aliens behind me, which was my case or. There were actually aliens behind you. There were. It was amazing. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, it was, do do you really want to know? Yeah. Okay. Sure, was, yeah. This was back when I was still smoking and I was out on the porch at a friend's house, you know, way after dark having a cigarette and I was the only one out there and, uh, this light came on behind me and it was just over the rooftop so I couldn't see the source, but it looked exactly like a UFO was about to come over. <laughs> I was like, Oh my God. And I totally had this, this flush, this absolute certainty that there were aliens and UFOs and I was going to get taken right now. Or if I wasn't, you know, something else was going to happen with aliens. And and that didn't happen, but still, the whole time I was like, okay, I know there's aliens right behind me watching me, but the entire time in my head, I was like, but I know what's actually causing this is nothing to do with real aliens, the probability of aliens showing up just now, and, you know, various, all the other things that, that go through your head, your priors of how extremely unlikely this is, and what evidence am I actually seeing? Oh, just a bright light, and so forth, where I was able to dismiss that this deep emotional reaction within me feels really cool, but it has nothing to do with what is actually happening in the world behind me. To bring children up again, hmm? we've all been children. I and 
I, I can neither confirm nor deny that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you were just talking. You don't remember your childhood pre-12 years old, apparently, That's why he Steven. can't confirm or deny. Perfect. <laughs> um, <laughs> but we've all been kids, and we've all... I had a really realistic dream one night, and I was convinced that there were ghost flamingos living in our attic. Awesome. But that's really... Then later I realized that couldn't have happened because I was way too much of a scaredy cat to go to the attic at night on my own. So I wouldn't have gone there in the first place to see the ghost flamingos. Damn. That's how I just proved that one. You used meta knowledge (laughs) as a kid. That's fantastic. But, um, but we all, we've all had those, those experiences that I think aren't as common for most people as we go into adulthood, as we get more as we develop more priors, right? Mm-hmm. Um, as we have more evidence in our lives, but, but we can still remember how things used to be. And, and I think conceive that we might be going through something similar. I right. Think I think I'm working with a different definition of spiritual experience than, than the ones you guys described. Cause I mean, I mean I've had, you know, um, I was, I was raised a Unitarian Universalist and I have had very spiritual experiences while sitting in the sanctuary at midnight while somebody rang a gong. Sure. Um, I've had incredibly meaningful, deep, moving experiences in um, in Tierra del Fuego watching a glacier calf while mm. while South American parakeets were flying by. You know, I've, I, I know what you're talking Maybe that's, about. Yeah, that's in addition to, um, I guess, what I was talking about, which was more of a... Um, supernatural experience Um, okay yes that's the distinction i was i was thinking of like a spiritual experience i can imagine or i can remember times you know i'll and i can kind of put myself in the right mindset and sort of generate them not whenever i want but with a little effort Mm -hmm. more or less whenever i want and you know i can go outside look at the stars think about and i I can just think of the the path from light like that to the atoms in our bodies to you know the long chain of evolution that led to us being here to me that's that's deeply profound and what i can only imagine is similar to what people talk about when they talk about spiritual experiences i'm trying to remember any supernatural experiences i ever had i remember i went along with a lot of them when i was a kid you know my, my friends would pretend they would say they saw ghosts and i pretend that i did too to agree with them mm-hmm. but i can't remember or you even imagine that you might have if enough people said that they saw it i i don't remember ever actually believing i knew i was lying to myself the whole time i knew i was, li- <laughs> I knew I was lying to them the whole time um, but I would, I would play along without spoiling the fun unless there was some time when I was younger that I can't remember, but yeah. You know why I personally think we should raise the sanity waterline if possible? Why or what? Yeah. Why? Like as a selfish reason why? Mm-hmm. Cause I mean, obviously all last episode we were talking about how it makes your own life better if you can be rational because you have a better grasp of the world and you know how you can change it and, uh, and alter your surroundings. But as a selfish reason why I think it'd be a good reason to um, to raise the sanity waterline overall in the world is because we are an incredibly interconnected species nowadays. I guess we always have been, but it's just, it's gotten ridiculous how much we all depend on each other nowadays to survive or to do anything meaningful. And in that case, a lot of life comes down to iterated prisoners, dilemma type situations or coordination problems with other people and the more rational the people that you're coordinating with, the better allies you have. Just not even allies, coworkers, people, you know, that you have to rely on. If they're more rational, things just work better in general. 
You can count on them more. You can, you know, put more trust in what they're doing. They have to be rational in a certain way. Mm -hmm. If you're doing a, you know, if there's a tragedy of the commons problem, right? If there's a fisheries problem, the religion of the people involved is not really going to matter. Right. But there are, you know, other ways in which they need to be rational in order to work with you, right? Yeah. That's the kind of rationality I mean, mainly. Like religion, people can be religious mm -hmm. and... That's fine with me as long as it doesn't adversely affect the world, but I would still like them to be slightly more rational. And with the the analogy of the waterline specifically involves the fact that people can, like Francis Collins, can exist shows that there's some deeper problem there, right? Yeah. I think getting rid of the Francis Collinses of the world is a different task than getting rid of the Ken Hams, right? I, I um, also, I don't like the term getting rid of individual I really, people. That's why I use We don't plural. want to knock them off. No, <laughs> yes. let, me, let, me, let, me, let me be perfectly clear. That's why I, I used plural on both of them. And then I realized, too, that I was kind of stuck with it after I already said it. So, yeah. um, More like the, the method of thinking that leads to that sort of... Absolutely. Okay. Yeah, no. And I, no, I, I am absolutely not for, in any way, quote unquote, getting rid of these people. So let me just put that on the record. Although I do think that Ham's a butt. Yes. I think so, too. I, I, I tried to watch the Ham on Nye debate, and mm. I, <laughs> uh, I told myself going in, I'm going to watch the whole thing, and I, I couldn't. I started skipping and just watching Bill Nye's segments. Um, <laughs> but I, I, I did give it an honest effort, but every every thing out of that guy's mouth was well we have a book that has that in there. and it didn't really matter who he was talking you, you get the feeling that no matter who he was talking against it would have been the exact same speech it probably was, is the exact same speech yeah he just he, he ignored it. his opponent and comes out and just does his own spiel wow yeah but he did not get what a debate is about so well that's what it i mean i think what he got out of it what Ham got out of it was actually quite a bit of funding and attention. So mm. I think that um, and getting came to be on the head. same stage as Bill Nye, right. so he gets some, you know, That's rub off, so, yeah. get some yeah. cred. Yeah, man, he must. People must be taking him pretty seriously. If Bill Nye himself is going to argue with this guy, right? Right. Yeah, I think that happened. That's was, partly, that was all the the discussion leading up to it. That's why, like Richard Dawkins, doesn't take debates anymore, or at least with depending on the topic, but he doesn't argue religion anymore for that reason. Because <sighs> no, who I really miss. Hitch? Yes. Goddamn. He was so good. There was... Oh, I wanted to mention, speaking of Hitch, that reminded me of... Um, Just because watching him, like, in a debate, was watching, like, a boxer. Someone who really knows how to fight. And, you know, even if he doesn't necessarily make the best points, just his delivery was so artistic. You just loved watching him argue. Be like, you know what, Hitch? For this next argument, I want you to argue the young Earth creationist position. Go! And I would still come out rooting for him. Because of the way he delivered things. Hey, listeners, if we have any, um, <laughs> yeah. funny, funny backstory here. We were talking about how we didn't want this to be um, a skeptics or anti-religion <laughs> podcast. Well, we we can bring it to more more challenging issues, right? Yeah, because um, like that's sort of that's it's know, easy once again growing yeah, fruit, right? Yeah. Exactly. So with skepticism again, like I said, it's it's great rationality one point or like you know. Maybe 0 0.5, I don't know. But it, <laughs> but it, it's, I think it's the easier version of rationality. You know, their, their one thing is, what's a reasonable standard for evidence? If you had to narrow it down to one sentence. And the rationality thing is, what do I know and what, or what do I think I know and how do I think, or, yeah. What do I think I know and why do I think I know it? Yeah. But speaking of Hitch, there's a, um, a British writer named Douglas Murray who has a lot of the same zeal and 
isn't afraid to, to say hard things like hitches and he's worth checking out uh sam harris interviewed him on his, on his podcast recently or they had a dialogue rather it's not really an interview show yeah. for me there there are selfish reasons i guess to you know be around saner people but i mean that's sort of what i do anyway and i already do that so i, I satisfy that need basically just by only going you know not not reading youtube comments and setting up less wrong meetups yeah. but globally it's i guess it's the opposite of selfish but it works for me too Everybody stands to benefit if if the waterline goes up. I also assume that we are going to, at some point in the not too terribly distant future, reach you know greatly expanded lifespan, you know possibly functional immortality. And at that point, God, there's so many things. It really annoys me when people are like, "Oh well, that idea is fine. Just all its proponents will die off, and the new generation will take over." Eh, racism, homophobia, things like that. And I'm like, that is not good enough because soon people will stop dying and we need to have some way to update our beliefs. And that's what rationality gives us is the ability to change our minds when we find out we're wrong. Right. And I, I think, I that think that's, that's an incredibly important skill for everyone to have, especially as we reach much longer lifespans. And, and the people that have the wrong ideas dying is one way for the problem to kind of go away, but it's, I think, not the best way. No! <laughs> what would be better, you know, is for it's them... almost as, you know, a, 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 a excuse to start killing people off that have the bad ideas. Right. It's 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 one big step away, but it's it's on that path, right? right. So, uh, but what would be better is if they, they changed their mind and lived the rest of their lives, however long it was, you know, 10 years left or, you know, 100 or 10 billion years left as saner people. Yeah. You know, but... My thing is that there is a, a good deal of... Oh, shit. Have you not been recording No, no, we're good, we're good. I oh, stepped okay. on the computer, but it's fine. All right. <laughs> also, how long have we been recording? We should wrap it up, actually. Let's it's, do. Yeah. All right. That sucks. We didn't really I know. talk that much about it. I wanted it. to get more into this. Well, maybe we'll... we'll maybe we'll not get as tangentially off track. I enjoyed it. I did, too. Quite well, a bit. I, I, I had fun. I guess I, we could come back to this topic at a well, later point. I think I think a good topic for next week might be ways to actually do it, because there are some fun ways that I wanted to, to bring up that I used to, to... Not next week, but next episode. Right, excuse me. Next episode, two weeks from now. Yeah. That I use when I... I don't really have any sacred cows, and we can have... Maybe you two can have fun trying to find one of mine, one of my beliefs that I just... I hate talking about because I don't want it to be wrong kind of thing. Mm -hmm. I, I like talking about those things. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. But there are there are strategies to engage on those for things people don't like talking about. I think um, that's another great technique of rationality, that when you find out you're wrong about something, you don't view it as a failure. You view it as you just got stronger. Like, my map is now better. Or I, you should try to view it that way. Yeah. It can be can really be tough. It can yeah. be tough to not just feel terrible about being wrong. Right. Yeah. No. So, well, I mean, and sometimes it's, it's double-sided, right? You know, you realize that, well, this PhD program that I've been into, you know, that oh, I've been on the trajectory for, yes, for the last seven brutal. years, this isn't going to do it. I'm dropping out, you know? Right. So, like, that's that's going to be kind of a, you know, there, there are pros and cons ending a relationship or whatever it could be right so mm -hmm. um let's do let's uh let's talk about that next time no we should no? talk that about that in two episodes from now okay because next episode we are going to interview elias Ryatkowski. Ooh. Really? Yeah, we're bringing this up right yes are we there yet i guess we're ne i guess we have to be yeah oh, uh, i'm gonna talk with you guys about this right after that but yeah well all right stay tuned next week or excuse me Stay tuned in, <laughs> in two weeks for our interview with Eliezer Yudkowski. What? Oh, and a shout out on the very off chance that this person is listening. Uh, if you were a sysadmin on the DS9 BBS in the 90s by the name of pa Captain Picard, I owe you so much and you rock. Katrina, any sign off? 
Bye. <laughs> <laughs> Goodbye, everybody. Thanks for listening. <laughs>